You're listening to Trek FM. This is Steve Sansweet of Rancho Obi-Wan, and you're listening to the 602 Club. There was a little bar in Mill Valley where all the Starfleet trainees used to go. The 602 Club. You know it. <laughs> I was there more times than I can remember. Welcome everyone to Trek FM's local watering hole. I am your host, Matthew Rushing, and I hope you'll forgive me this week. Uh, still recovering from losing my voice. And I'm glad that it's back enough because we are going to have a blast. Now, many of you may not know, uh, but uh, last year, Norm and I were invited on a podcast called Educating Geeks. And Norm and Alice educated myself and Megan on the book Dune. And I thought, hmm, what would be fun to do in the new year is, one, recreate the magic (laughs) by watching the movie with that team. And so I've brought all of them together here in the 602 Club in this new year. So, Alice, it's great to have you back. It is great to be back. It's good to be back with the whiskey team. That is true. Uh, that and the Arrakis Toto team. Yes. So it's <laughs> excellent. If you haven't heard that episode of Educating Geeks, you need to go listen to it like right now. I don't mind if you pause this one and go listen to that one because you'll thank me. Uh, Megan, it's glad- it's good to have you back here in the 602. It's great to be back. I'm excited to have the whiskey crew back together too. Man, like I can't wait to hear you guys sing some more for me. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, hopefully the voice will be okay. Maybe maybe Norm and I can pull out. And you know what? Norm, it's great to have you back in the It's great to be back. Happy New Year, everyone. I know it's a little bit late, but Matthew and I haven't uh, been on a show together yet. And what better show than this one? Like the lady said, the whiskey team is back together, and this is why Ruby <laughs> is going to serve us all water tonight. Water of life. <laughs> the life. water of life. <laughs> uh, just hopefully nobody starts screaming. Uh, it'll be weird. I have to edit that out. Uh, you know, if if you're going to drink your water of life, make sure you can take it. So, just the by the way, advice. by the way, the water of life in this movie that Matthew's going to be talking about in a minute looks just like Romulan ale. I'm just saying. Oh, it, it does, does look like Romulan <laughs> ale. Yes. Hmm. That's interesting. Maybe, maybe, you know, I mean, this is 10,000 years in our future, right? So maybe Romulans are out there They're always somewhere out there. beneath the pale moonlight <laughs> or moon's light because there's two of them on Arrakis. It's, ne- it's never singing uh, on anyway. demand. The singing just happens. It has to it happen does. naturally. Yeah, it does. It's, it's got to be organic, guys. You, you can't force it. You just got to let the words flow. Only uh, on the show are we serenading Romulans. <laughs> <laughs> oh, goodness. Serenading Romulans. That sounds like a really weird quartet band, band name, name on Romulus. I love it. Yeah, They're there you go. Uh, <laughs> some Star Trek fans are totally going to steal that. So. They can't. It's trademarked. We've said it. <laughs> oh, if only that was. It's Freenak and the three <laughs> fakes. <laughs> okay, well, I wanted to, you know, as we're talking about this this film, Dune, David Lynch, the director, and I wanted to ask, you know, Alice and Norm, 
this is something a, a lot of people may be like Megan and I, where we're just coming into this. You know, uh, we happen to have read the book first, but, you know, a lot of people, they may have never read Dune. They may have never seen the movie. And so they're probably really not familiar with it, other than the fact that if you're any kind of sci-fi fan, you walk down the aisle at Barnes & Noble, you're going to see a bunch of Dune books. And, you know, if you're looking for films to watch on, you know, your Apple TV or whatever at night, sponsored mm. by Apple TV, <laughs> uh, you'll, wish. you know, you might come across it because it's it's a, a pretty big sci-fi movie from the 80s. So I wanted you guys to kind of talk a little bit about the storyline of the film uh, and, and what this this whole world galaxy whatever that we get in Dune is kind of about for those that may not be in the know. So this movie, 1982, I keep telling you this, Matthew, because I try and explain to you why I love this movie so much. And I guess I'm going to hide behind that old saying, like you, you just had to have been there because it's very much um, thematic of the 80s. There's a lot going on that has that 80s type of flavor to it. It's It was very ambitious, I think probably even more so than the then director, producer team of David Lynch and Rafaela de Laurentiis really thought that they could handle. Dune is an epic, epic story. It really should have been done at the time in... Um, the miniseries format like they were doing at the time, like Shogun, James Clavell's Shogun with Richard Chamberlain or the Thornbirds. Those are like the big epic tales of the time. Uh, in two hours, trying to cover Frank Herbert's signature story in one of the greatest science fiction movies, uh, um, uh, books of the time, it, it was almost impossible to do. And they said that about Lord of the Rings and that's a completely different story. But Dune in 1982 really was just a movie that hit the biggest broad strokes of the story. It didn't really get too much into the deep political maneuvering, but it did go through Paul Atreides' story of how he became the Kwisatz Haderach and how he grew from, <laughs> I almost said farm boy to galactic <laughs> savior, which is essentially kind of what happened. So... You had this really nice summary of what was going on with Frank Herbert's novel, but only really the highest high points of the story and what you lost in this movie were the real subtle machinations of the politics of the time, which I thought in the book were probably just as important. But again, in a two hour and 20 something minute movie, you could only get to so much. But it was very steeped in 80s design and production flavor and um we can go into that in a little bit but i wanted to have alice jump in here and see what she had to say i i always agree with norm <laughs> well okay How maybe nice. that's not 100 oh, y'all are so cute i almost always agree with norm you know it's a it's definitely a movie that is is grounded in its time as as most mo movies are i guess a lot of visual art and visual um storytelling is is a product of the time when it was made. I don't think there's any way to get around that. Um, in terms of the story, I don't think they did a fantastic job of 
capturing the book, but there's a lot of book to capture, as Norm pointed out. And um, I think centering on Paul Atreides' story was the smart move, uh, and I think they did a pretty good job. And I actually really like the performance of um, Kyle MacLachlan as Paul Atreides. Uh, it's for me, it's one of the more nuanced performances in the in the film. Um, so you know, it's it's dated, sure, uh, but I definitely have nostalgia for it. I mean, this is my this is my prime time. The 80s are my decade. Uh, so I've got nostalgia standing in the way. But that won't stop me from being critical where I think it's uh, needed. We need like a, a thing that comes on. Nostalgia. <laughs> you know, like, because like, uh, that happens a lot. We end up talking about on this show, we have nostalgia for certain types of superheroes or uh, these old movies or, you know, anything like that. And it's really come into play, obviously, you know, with last year, the two big films being Jurassic World and then, of course, Star Wars. Nostalgia is back and it's like bigger than ever where, where it like, places are really cashing in on it. So it can be a, a good thing and it can be a bad thing um, and it can be uh, just a thing that helps you like a movie that other people don't like anymore um, too, which is, I, I think is, is really interesting as, as a, for me being somebody who, you know, my childhood was in the eighties and there's all of these movies out there, you know, people that watch them now, you, I remember, Norm, we talked about this way back in the day when we talked about Indiana Jones uh, and we were talking mm -hmm. Raiders of the Lost Ark. Does that hold up for people now when they watch it? You know, just because it, it did for us then doesn't mean it does now. So, you know, it's it's such an interesting question. And, Megan, I wanted to ask you because we just both read the book. Yeah. And if you hadn't read the book... Would you have felt like you were grasping what was going on in this film as much as you did because you had read it? No, I um I, I watched the I watched this with my roommate, and uh, I was said to him I was I said to him I'm really glad that I read the book because I feel like I'd be really really lost in this movie if I hadn't. Um, I think part of that is the way David Lynch tells stories. Um. I think part of it is also how complex Dune is. I mean, it's really ambitious to take this on. Um, the world is so complex and vast um, that I I almost wish I knew somebody who has never seen it so I could sit down and watch it with them and kind of pick their brain as it's happening. Because um, I knew what was happening because I knew the story, and in particular because I had just read it so recently. Um, but, you know, it's also hard to judge that stuff, right? Like, I don't know how much of it I was understanding because I know the backstory and I don't know what I would have got out of it if I hadn't known the story going into it. Um, but I did find aspects of it kind of confusing. Well, what I find interesting about that is because when I saw the film for the first time, I hadn't read the book either. Um, you know, I was maybe on my second try of reading it. And I wonder, it, it is so hard to judge because you've only got your experience, right? So it's impossible to take that away. Um, whether or not you, there was an aspect of you finding it confusing because you did know the backstory versus the reverse of that, right? That, I mean, that that's could certainly also possible. Yeah. be part now, of the problem. Alice, I was in the same boat as you. When I saw it for the first time as a movie, I never read the book at that time, or it wasn't even the process of reading the book. So... I think that I was kind of gravitating more towards, and I'm a 
and maybe it's in my DNA, I'm, I'm driven more towards kind of like the visual nature of things. So I was looking at that movie from more of um, just the fantasy and visual aspect of it. Because at 10 years old and in 1982, you're surrounded by, in 77, you had Star Wars. Five years later, you have, well, 81, you had Empire Strikes Back. And then you have Blade Runner around there. And then you have Dune. And then you have a couple of other movies that are like, you know, fitting between like Alien and Close Encounters. And you have all of these great science fiction films. And it was completely different looking than anything else, for better or for worse. It just was different. So you have a science fiction movie, but it's not with fighter ships or laser swords or things of that nature. It was, yeah, it was serious, but it was a different kind of headspace that you had to get into. And I'm not sure at 10, you, you know, or at least when I saw it at 10, I was kind of investing myself in, oh my gosh, I can't believe that the political machinations of what's happening between you know, House Atreides and House Harkonnen aren't really being represented in this movie. Though I'm like, oh my gosh, those still suits are awesome. Look at those knives. Look at the worms. Those are great. So that's where I was at that time. And I still, I think I carry a torch for that to this day. Well, and there's certainly tons and tons to look at in this movie. I mean, the sets are just full of texture everywhere you look. And so are the costumes. It's, um, it's a lot to take in and I could totally see myself being completely drawn in by that if I had not read the book before I saw the movie. You know, I, I, I remember you recently on one of our Educating Geeks podcasts, Megan, I think very uh, eruditely pointing out that so much of your impression of something is when you come to it. So like just recently we were talking about Sailor Moon. Who knows how I would have felt about Sailor Moon had I been reading it when it first came out and I was of an age when it was being targeted for that, but coming at it at my age now um, and not being in that time, you know, in that early teen mind frame, I had a completely different reaction than everybody else did. And I, and I think uh, what Norm pointed out is probably going to be true for any of these nostalgia films, you know, for, for me, it's films of the nineties when people like, Oh, Ham and Hobba, how fabulous these movies from the nineties are like Jurassic Park. And I'm like, meh. You know, and it's because I'd already moved past that stage of my life when it had come out. And so my my interpretation of it is very is very different because my age and, you know, what I'd experienced in life at that point was very different. So I can totally get why people watching Dune today are sort of like, what the is going on? That's actually kind of a fascinating point because it's you have this origin point of when people see things the experiences and kind of like the time frame and, and what, who they are as a person and what they're seeing behind their eyes as they see these films. Because, you know, 10 years later on the sci-fi channel, you have, well, maybe 15 years later, uh, 15 years later on the sci-fi channel, you have the miniseries. And I don't think it fared as well either. It told the longer form story, but it didn't fare as well in terms of how the audience connected with the story. And that's just sure if it's a, they haven't found the right team to produce it. They haven't found the right time. Or does Frank Herbert's novel just not hold up to modern audiences? Because somewhere along the line, it just hasn't reconnected with people in that sense. And I don't know why, because I think it's a fascinating story. But it's a very political story. That's the one thing that people don't really get about it, because they lump it in with the 1982 movie or the or the you know, just as successful, if not 
slightly more so, you know, miniseries on the Sci-Fi Channel. I think, uh, you know, I was thinking about this, would I kind of know what's going on? And there were certain parts of the film where I, I definitely felt like my book knowledge was helping me understand what was happening. And then there were other things where uh, just the way um, races were portrayed, you know, the, the certain planets were portrayed, like the Arconans and things like that that were happening there. I was like, none of this was in the book, and this is whack. I have no idea what's going on right now because this has anything to do with the story that I read. It's just some BS they made up for the film and the way they wanted to portray this, you know, this planet and its people. And it so... There were some times where I felt like it is helpful and other times where I felt like I, it didn't matter it, it, that I'd read the book. In fact, it might have been better if I hadn't read the book because I wouldn't have been like, well, but that's mm -hmm. that's not how it is, you know. So, which is an interesting thing for me because I'm usually a book first movie afterwards, you know, like Harry Potter. Do you read the book or you watch the movie? Always read the book. <laughs> if you have to, watch the movies. They're good. But they're never going to be the books. Well, so for me, it's interesting that you say it that way. Because for me, I'm always the, not that I, if I, if I have my preference, I'll, I might choose the book. But I always want to see the movie before I read the book. Because having read the book is always going to make me like the movie less. So if the movie's going to have any kind of a chance for me to really like it, I need to watch it before I read the book. I'm meeting more and more people like that. But yeah, because Tristan's like that too. We were talking about Harry Potter. He is the same way. He liked he likes to read the book later because he feels like it's like, oh, I got the extended cut. Um, <laughs> and so, uh, which is a great way to look at it. It's so true. So, Actually, that worked out really well for me because when I went to see the first Harry Potter in the movie theater, I was reading the book for the first time sitting there in the audience. I think I was about 30 pages into the book when the movie started. <laughs> nice. And I liked it that way. Um, I do kind of a mixed bag. I don't always read the book first. I don't always see the movie first. I think it kind of depends on uh, what it is exactly that I'm watching that I decide what I want to do first. But if there's a book and I enjoy the movie, I'll almost always go back and read it. I, I asked that question too because, like you said, Norm, this is a really complicated story. You know, reading through Dune, it's it's a hefty tome. It is a lot like Lord of the Rings in that sense that there are many different factions. There's a lot of different people. There's interesting names you have to get used to, and there's a lot of politics involved. Uh, we know how people like to poo-poo politics with the Star Wars prequels, even though they're awesome. Anyway, that's Positive. Stay story. positive. Stay positive. Um, <laughs> so you know that that it is like it's a it's a interesting thing to try to bring to screen and i will say for the most part if we're streamlining it they do a pretty good job of stripping everything away and just telling paul's story for the most part uh this film could use some serious editing uh with some of the places they go like anytime you cut back to the Harkonnens, you almost always don't need to cut back to them, <laughs> uh, things like that. But other than that, you know, they're doing a really good job. I thought about telling the baseline story of what's happening in Dune. And I was like, that's cool. You know, you can get the, the basics of the, the storyline from the movie for the most part, if you're paying attention. And, and it's like, well done, because I, after having read the book, I knew what a tough chore this was. 
as to whether you know David Lynch was the best choice as director, uh, I'm not sure. I think we might have it might have been better if somebody a little more straightforward told the story. You know, that's an interesting point because there were a lot of really strong science fiction directors evolving at the time. I mean, obviously you had George Lucas tied up with the Star Wars movies. Then you had James Cameron was on the rise uh, in 1981 and 1982. You had Terminator. Uh, you had Ridley Scott doing Blade Runner. And before that, he did Aliens. You had Spielberg with Close Encounters. And then he was doing Indian um, Raiders of the Lost Ark. So you had this great melting pot of like science fiction fantasy directors. And then all of a sudden, you know, you had Eraserhead's David Lynch come in. And, you know, he did Blue Velvet. And he had that great team with Blue Velvet that kind of almost... They picked up that entire cast and dropped him into Dune. You know, had Jurgen Approach now. And then you had um, uh, Kyle MacLachlan. And then you had... Uh, who played Dr. Huey, Alice? It was um, Dean Stockwell. I mean, all those guys were, you know, they were yeah. all from Blue Velvet. So it's, you know, you, you see those things happen with directors. But I think that uh, it was a different MTV-ish kind of approach to this movie rather than your classic mythology type of movie, you know. And, and I think it worked for it at the time. And you can tell that it was being cultivated for a very specific audience because they they basically said, you know what, we're going to forego the classic orchestral soundtrack and we're going to bring in a rock and roll band to do the score, which I thought was That's really right. interesting. The rains down in Arrakis are coming <laughs> to you because Toto is bringing the score to you. That's so right. Like the team of Dino De Laurentiis and then his daughter, who became executive producer, Raffaella De Laurentiis, I think that he was giving her kind of like this free reign to say, you know what, let's try and take our science fiction to a completely different audience that isn't steeped in the force or this or that or the other thing, you know, or with the Federation, you know, those are already done. They're out there and they're established. But this hasn't been yet. And if you think that there were issues with the way that David Lynch approached the movie, 10 years earlier, around 1974, 1975, well not 10, about eight years earlier, there was a Brazilian director named Alejandro Jodorowsky who actually was the architect of all of this. This is actually a side effect of what he wanted to bring to the screen. And his project was sidelined. And a lot of what you're seeing here was actually part of the blueprint that he created for his own movie. So think about it that way. I mean, it could have been really interesting. So what you're saying is, is it could have been or worse. Or it could have been awesomer. Awesomer. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's <laughs> totally, and it, you know, personal taste always plays into this sort of thing, right? So who knows? What I think was, is really interesting, Norma, is what you were saying. And what's, what do we do basically the MTV version of, of sci-fi? And, you know, maybe that's why Sting is in the film. Uh, and uh, it is interesting because you have all of these, I mean, this movie has a lot of stars in it that become really big that maybe weren't then. And then it also had a lot of stars in it that were big then. Uh, you know, like I, I just, it's so interesting having just seen The Force Awakens and Max von Sydow plays a pretty big role at Ming the beginning the of the film. Yeah, that's right. Uh, or or Santeca for those Force Awakens fans. Uh, I mean, we got Captain Picard in here, Patrick Stewart uh, teaching young Kyle MacLachlan or Paul how to wield a knife with a polygon shield that really does just look like 
animated polygons on screen. It's literally what, what it is. It's literally the most amazing yeah. thing ever put on screen. It was a polygon fight. <laughs> the slow blade penetrates the shield. But yes. Yep, that's right. Attack of the polygons. <laughs> Be careful. I think Norm and I literally just did the same thing off screen. <laughs> <laughs> Look below. But um, so I kind of wanted to ask you guys too. You know, uh, there's all of these people in this film, and and obviously we are all people who have read the book. How did how did these actors kind of invite these roles? Uh, and I, Alice, you said for you, the person that worked the best was Kyle MacLachlan. Yeah, I actually there's a lot of for me subtlety in his performance, and I think he plays the. The, the regal young son who's sort of on the one hand very earnest, especially at the beginning, uh, the you know, the wonderful scene right before they fight with their shields where he comes in with and he has his back to the door and, you know, he turns around and has that sort of sly uh, look, you know, and then he's not in the mood to fight kind of a thing. He has this sort of wonderful um, earnest feel about him. And then as he goes through his transformation, he I think he very much well embodies this very sort of, um, haughty prince with all this power, you know. I I actually really I think his performance is probably my favorite from a straight performance. But there are a lot of obvious bit characters. The other person I really like, Lady Jessica, actually as well. I like her performance. And then uh, the queen, the queen mother, uh, Norm, helped me out. The Reverend uh, um, Helen Gaius Mahayam. Or oh my yes, gosh, thank you. she's so good. She's so good. I love it at the end, especially when she's hissing and growling. It's my favorite. Um, but, you know, I, I there are a lot of big names. And, you know, talking about a- MTV, you know, uh, filmmakers want to make a lot of money. So uh, having Sting in your movie, whether he's any good or not, is is going to at least get you that initial box office opening weekend, right? So, uh, Well, and we learned one thing. Sting can leer. He can leer. <laughs> That's right. And he can and take he his can clothes off. Although we might have already fawn. known that. Oh my! So. That uh, that that, oh, I can't get that image of Sting in his underwear out of my head. Oh, I love it. Oh, it was like I don't want to see this right now, guys. That is some tantric <laughs> spice going on right there. <laughs> well, I tell you what, I'd rather see that than his his dad with all the acne grossness. I mean, the Harkonnens oh, are just so, so disgusting. Yeah. It's just so yep. gross. It's so you gross. Know, the interesting thing about the way that they did the Harkonnens, and, and I was ta- I was telling this to Matthew today, and I said one of my favorite characters in this entire movie, not because of, of how he was written, but how he was performed, was Keith McMillan's Vladimir Harkonnen. Because in the book, he was very kind of paint-by-number villain, and so was House Harkonnen in a way. House Harkonnen was really the muscle of the Padishah Emperor, who was played by Jose Ferrer, the great Jose Ferrer, father of Miguel Ferrer who was the helmsman of the Enterprise B in Star Trek Three, but I digress. So, and Ooh. in RoboCop. <laughs> but they were, they really were just kind of like the muscle. They were the mob for the Padishah Emperor. So you could pretty much turn them into whatever you wanted. I think that when Jodorowsky was doing his version of the film, he really wanted a very specific look. And you had this really like disgusting necro techno kind of look to the Harkonnens that had this great contrast to this real organic and ethereal version of the Atreides on Caladan. So you had Gidi Prime versus Caladan, you had the Harkonnens versus the Atreides, and then everything kind of gets neutralized on Arrakis because it's just very brown and tan. And all of those political themes get evened out. And it's, I think it's really cool aesthetically. So 
I always loved how Keith McMillan had that just that great epic acne and the boils and stuff like that. I mean, you just kind of it just made him look just disgusting. And they were because they were just this rotting, festering. I'm not even sure if that's a word, but I'm going to use it as a that's word. So gross. You know, and that's that's the that's House Harkonnen. They were just gnarly, you know, to be to, to be a Californian. Well, and. And I was on the other side of that because, yes, they are the kind of mustache-twirling villains of the film. And I felt like they took it to such a degree that they made them so laughable. You're not scared of them. They're just nasty and disturbing and gross. And, like, you've given them all the most evil characteristics you can kind of give quintessential bad guys, making them ugly and fetished and like just it just doesn't work for me at all because it it's like you've put every terrible trope you can give to bad guys into one group and so now all they are is kind of like a laughing stock it's they you, like to me every time they're on screen it it, it feels like this is when the mystery science theater <laughs> three thousand guys just rip them a new one because it's just, I mean, it is a little caricaturish. Oh, it's you mean like the Nazis in The Force Awakens? <laughs> Touche. Ouch, Touché. Alice. Well, way to that, bash like my has, favorite scene. That has that has a lot more to do with. <laughs> I mean, that has a lot more to do with the 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 story of Star Wars, though, than it. I mean, it does. I mean, the the Empire was always. Not, not like that. Much. Not so, not like the first order. They did take it much farther. Well, yeah. that yeah. is that is true, but that was yeah. also on purpose. Well, sure. But so, I mean, anyway. the one thing that was unfortunate because you had to turn these Harkonnen villains into such kind of like villainous archetypes is because they took out the political maneuvering of of Harkonnens, yeah. and they were they were way more subtle in that respect on Arrakis and how they basically tried to secretly you know with all the different traps and all the different um ways of assassination that they used they tried to use the assassination in, in the um the mentats guild they they there were so much more than that and unfortunately that never translated to film and that's what you you know that's what you were left with you were left with the archetype of evil as opposed to the subtlety of evil which i think is far more impressive when it's written as opposed to when it's on film yeah, I think the Harkonnens in the book had a lot of depth. I mean, they were definitely straight up villains the whole time in the book. I mean, there was there's not really anything redeeming about them as characters even in the even in the novel. But you at least understood them a little bit more or knew more about what was going on about all that political maneuvering that they were doing like you're talking about Norm and you just got to know them better as characters and see kind of all of their plotting firsthand as opposed to they were very, they're just very superficial as villains in the movie compared to how they were in the book. Well, and, and that was one of the parts that, that I was thinking too, is this, that by making them so unesthetically pleasing, you know, just they're disgusting and disturbing and just gross. I mean, they're, they're drinking mice uh, that they've crushed in a little can. Hey, those mice might be delicious. We don't know. Yeah, uh, a guy rips out a cow tongue and That's just a starts Filipino eating delicacy, it, by the way. you know, uh, and things <laughs> like that, <laughs> that Good just, um, that really don't help you 
want anything more than their ultimate and, and obliteration. You know, you just want them dead. And and so the, the visual storytelling that they're giving me, it, it's it's not it's not helping at all. So, um, yeah, I just it it completely lost me with that with that character and uh, the actor. I mean, he definitely gives it his all. <laughs> he is loving every second. He's in his skin tight, see through, plasticky flying outfit, but it's. It's not a pleasure to watch whatsoever. I thought his aerial acrobatics were a pleasure to watch, Matthew. It was amazing. <laughs> no, I, I, I can totally get it. Like, I can definitely, I can be critical of a film that I love, and I can be positive about something that I personally hate. Like, I can separate the two. Like, I can love something and still be critical of it, and I can hate something but still be critically positive of it. And there's definitely... Uh, a lot of things that feel very ridiculous and funny and that I can laugh at and make funny of the lines and um, do all of that kind of stuff with. But I do I do still feel like there's that, that fandom passion or that nostalgia or whatever you're going to call it that will make you be more likely to not be able to see the flaws in the thing that you love, you know, because you love it and therefore it's harder for you to be critical of it. But I can totally get where somebody could watch this film and be like, wow, you people in the eighties were whack. <laughs> you know, like I, I get doing that, too much but spice. I love it. You know? <laughs> I still love the movie. And if it comes on television, yeah. like I said, during the educating geese podcast, this and Conan and big trouble, in little China and flash Gordon and a bunch of other 80 movies. If they were on the television, I am stopping what I am doing and I'm going to watch them and I'm going to love every minute of it. Yeah, you know, the, with along with like the, the main characters, when you had Kyle McLaughlin, who was great and you had um, Max von Sydow and, and, and you mentioned Matt, but I think that some of the great characters in this movie are, are the more interesting ones and probably the more difficult ones to cast I think that Everett McGill as Stilgar I thought was fantastic. Oh, me too. You know? Yep. No, I agree. And he did a lot of character acting in the eighties. I thought that Brad Dorf as Peter DeVries or Piter, I'm sorry, Piter DeVries. Very good. Yeah. Oh, I was like Worm Tongue. Exactly. Yeah. And, and I think that's a I think that's a great mm-hmm. point because a lot of people are gonna see Brad Dorf back when he was younger and it's like, Oh, I remember him. You know, I've I've seen him in a bunch of I mean, he is a great character actor, so a lot of the the earlier stuff when he was, you know, doing his thing for the Harkonnens was great to see. And Dean Stockwell as Dr. Huey, I think, is one of the I most complex him. characters in the movie. Because you, if you know his story from the book, you know that how tortured he was to do what he did. And Dean Stockwell plays tortured very well. And I, I think that he did a great job yeah, with that. Yeah, he was really good yeah. in the movie, I thought. Yeah, he one was. One of my favorite scenes is when... Uh, He's the Harkonnens when uh, Brad Dorf's character Piter is telling the plan. He's like, well, my plan. And then the Baron is like, you mean my plan? And he stops and he goes, the plan. (laughs) (laughs) I just love that That was funny. I mean, so funny. So funny. Yeah. I think that's, it's just really, and oh gosh, how could I forget? Sean Young as Cheney. I mean, that's. She was actually, she was not. She was all right. She's all right. She didn't get much to do. Well, the, 
I was about to say, she got so little to yeah. do compared to what she does in the book. I feel like, you know, she's a much more vibrant and important character in the book. And here her role is pretty much, you're here. Yeah. You're awesome. Now show me kissing Let's on sleep screen. together. And then you're going to have a weird, trippy spice dream. And then you're going to wake up and we'll kiss some more. It's just, they just didn't give her very much to do, which was sad because, uh, you know, that character is somebody who's uber important, uh, especially by the very end of the story um, and, and what she's done for Paul and who she is to Paul uh, and kind of even the very last, you know, conversation in the book between her and Paul's mother uh, about basically they are going to be the ones that control the universe. <laughs> so mm -hmm. it it's it was sad that uh, they gave Johnny um, so little Matter screen fact, time. Funny thing is, is I agree. Um, in the book, and we did this on Educating Geeks, we like picked out our favorite quotes from the Princess Eerie line, and she was played by the yeah. great Virginia Madsen. I think it was like one of her first roles. She's so just lovely. And she got no lines. <laughs> I know. It's but I, but again, in terms of like delivery of performance, even though the the in the beginning where she's delivering her lines and they fade her out and they're like, oh, but I forgot, and they fade her back in. She's like, wait, wait, so wait, incredibly. one more thing. <laughs> wait, wait, one more thing. I thought it was so cheesy, but the way that she delivers those lines, I like. I'm totally bought into her as a princess and to somebody who's a historian and telling the story. I mean, the way she delivers her lines, I I, I found her totally believable. As I did Lady Jessica, as I did Linda Hunt, who plays the shout out Mapes and um, I love um, her Reverend showing Mother. up. I thought she was perfectly cast as shout out Mapes too. That was fantastic. The blue with blue eyes. Yeah, I loved. Um, yeah, and mm -hmm. Princess Irulan taught me how to say June correctly. I always <laughs> thought it was Dune, but it was June. <laughs> Dune. So like, okay, pardon me. <laughs> I didn't know it was so regal sounding. Jeez. <laughs> That's like I learned from Patrick Stewart last night how to say issue. Mood is for cattle and love issue. Speaking of whom, I was just so happy to see him show up. I've been I'm mm -hmm. on another next gen rewatch right now, and so I'm just like my Patrick Stewart love is at full force at this exact moment. And so to have him show up and I didn't look at the cast before I turned on this movie. So he oh. walks in the room and I was like, it's the captain. Um, I did the same thing. I, when he walked in is when I had to look at the yeah. cast list. I was like, who, who else, else is, is in, in this movie? Yeah, that's exactly what I did Because Captain too. Picard just walked yeah. in. And I loved, I loved his portrayal of, uh, was it Gurney? Mm -hmm. Who it was who he played? Yeah, he's Gurney. Yeah. yeah. And yeah, he was excellent. I just couldn't stop laughing at the end because his hair has grown out. There's a, yes. there's a very specific Patrick Stewart type of cadence when he acts. And when when he's looking at Paul and Paul holds up his ring, he has the exact same expression when he says, there are four lights. It's the ex he goes, yes. you young pup, you young pup. So. That's that Shakespearean oh, training. I, am, I, I just, I just oh. compressed pretty much like what? Four years of time. It's right yeah. It's uh, <laughs> it's really cool that the the people that are in this film and I, I what I really enjoyed and I wish that they had had his his role uh, be more like it mm. was in the book too was Max von Sydow because yeah. he was excellent in his role. Excellent. Underused. You know, I mean, he just has that authority immediately when he's on screen, 
and I really liked what he was uh, doing with Paul's father and their interaction, um, the way that even when they were having, because certain characters will speak inside their head, but they're not actually speaking, and even his so his, his acting to that was so good so i just i really liked him and you know like you said alice kyle mclaughlin has to do that as well and the fact that he could pull that off and make it interesting and not seem kind of weird because we're not really used to that in film these days uh, it was it was well done there's some there's really some great performances in this film and i think it speaks volumes that i was invested at all in the movie really because Kyle MacLachlan really is giving you a lot, and they're focusing on him and his story, and he does a really good job of pulling you through on this kind of interesting hero's journey that, yes, we've kind of seen before because, you know, we've all seen the young boy who's destined because of some prophecy to become something, uh, the savior of the universe, Kwisak Haderach, whatever you want to call it, Jedi, Knight, you know, but... This is it. I really, I, I was very impressed by him, and um, that because I remember when we were talking about the book too, Allison. You were like, "Yeah, his story's like, eh, it's okay," but I feel like he made it because of what he did acting wise. He made it interesting. Yeah, I he agree. He makes the story interesting. So, I wanted to talk to you guys a little bit just about you know because this is a movie from from nineteen eighty four. The the design of the because it's really interesting you know this is set 10,000 some odd years in our future and we've discovered space travel because of spice spice allows people to be able to instantaneously transport from kind of one place to another in a ship in a spice transport it's kind of weird it's really Let's just say you have to be kind of on a, a real spice trip <laughs> to get somewhere uh, with uh, weird brain fish. Spice <laughs> Those were brain so weird. Fish. I don't know what that was <laughs> that was floating around while they were fish. making the travel. Burpee brain I have no fish. no idea what that spice brain fish was. It was, it was odd. Um, water everywhere. It also looked like something from Starship Troopers, right, yeah. uh, one of those aliens. But Oh, yeah. Yeah, I mean, it yeah, does it? It look like the brain bug. Yeah. Only it wasn't um, quite so, as I mean, you And it wasn't afraid either. Thank thank God. <laughs> thank God. Uh last thing we need is more mucus bugs. But <laughs> the the worlds, the ships that they've made, I mean the the spice worms themselves, which obviously uh I'm not sure which are better. Um Morgan and Chuck's <laughs> spice worm costume at the Halloween party or this. Uh and then of course the spice trips themselves where people go on these very esoteric mind trips because they're on some spice. So everything here, and we already talked a little bit about with the Harkonnens there thing. What do you guys think about the design? Because some of it's, I don't know, it's just so out there for anything I've seen uh, sci-fi wise. I the, the, the women's costumes, I'll speak to the costumes because I'm a costume person. Uh, the the women's costumes I think are really quite spectacular. Actually, some of the the mm-hmm. early dresses that they have Lady Jessica in are just uh, amazing. Yeah, especially the white one uh, mm-hmm. with the with the ruffle that comes over in the and her plated. hair. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and I liked the play of the 
House Atreides looking very old European, uh, very, as Norm pointed out, very wooden, uh, very ornate. Um, the Getty Prime stuff is, I agree, kind of out there, and I didn't necessarily always get it other than, ew, gross. Um, I did like the still suit designs with the sort of heavy diapers, because, you know, they got to catch all that stuff to use it later. Um and in terms of the, I actually like when they bring in the big uh, container for the brain fish at the beginning. Uh, and that's so weird. <laughs> yeah, and it, it, was really it opens mysterious. up and it's, you know, speaking through the. And all the minions that have the, to mop up after it at the end. Yes. Yeah, yeah I thought yeah, that was pretty no. funny. All the, it's like a slug trail. Um, you can actually see one of the guys while he's talking, kind of wandering around, mopping up. I was like, yeah. what is that guy doing? But the scene where they're actually folding space to go to Arrakis and there's the what looks incredibly dated um, special effects now with the sort of glowing worm that's flying up into the air. That, that was definitely, I was just like, yeah, that's, that's the dated. Woo, that's dated. The glow worm. <laughs> I was like, it's Falcor. <laughs> Looks like Falcor. Yeah, so it was a mixed bag for me. Some of it I really, really like and still like to to this day, uh, and then some of it feels really dated and not so awesome anymore. <laughs> you know, here, it's um, you have a two, you have two different things going on here. In my opinion, you have the world of visual effects and the world of practical effects. And I think in Dune, the practical effects really work. The costumes and awesome. the sets. I think that the Seeker in Paul's room is one of the coolest things. You know, how you can see it from like seeker vision where you see the gear kind of like going back and forth and it's staring at Paul's eye right before it goes after the shit out mapes when she opens up the door to his chambers. I thought that was really nice. Everything that you're right, Alice, I like the word ornate. That's very nicely used. Everything is like this really polished mahogany. Uh, the the ornithopters were very believable and just very, um, very tangible pieces of sets. Uh, the, the spice mining facilities are really good. Uh, all the things that are happening in the former house Harkonnen base with the shields and the walls and all the stone. And even when you go to the costumes, because I think that the still suits, when they were brought on screen, when Kynes described, it's like, oh, you've put this on before. He's like, no, I just, I, I, you know, Paul says, no, I just thought this was the right thing to do. They looked very musculature. Uh, they had a lot of the striations in there. They had, and they explained it, that they were filters. You know, your feces were processed in thigh pads. You know, you drink from the water in this tube. Very practical. And I thought that was, that was very cool. And, and the, uh, the walking is the pumping motion in the suit. And the suit looked like it would perform that way. Um, I thought those were great. The Sardaukar armor, I thought that was really nice. And then obviously you had the H.R. Geiger love fest that was on Geedy Prime. I mean, that was, that was all him. I mean, it was like, let's put all the aliens from alien in there let's put all of the necronomicon in there and let's just you know let's let's turn it turn it up to 11 you know have sp- we're gonna turn it into a borg evil yeah, emerald was, city <laughs> but, the, but the visual effects is really kind of where it where the albatross is in this movie i understand what the like the, the, the you're right the scene with the third stage guild navigator and how all of all the um the the spice mining guild or, or choam they're like they're mutating because of their use of the spice and they're being able to control the folding of space and all that stuff is really cool in the shut out um the Padishar's throne room but then they start spitting planets i'm like whoa okay it's like it's like a giant big thing of spice tobacco it's like and there's a planet you know <laughs> let's go over there and they're in this real gelatinous kind of you know 
twilighty, jello-y, mixture-y kind of thing. And I, I see what they're going for, but it kind of doesn't translate over you know, so many decades. It was interesting, you know, uh, Kaladin is, uh, it's like the world of ultimate wood paneling. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I mean, everything is wood paneled in there. Um, and then, of course, you know, you go to the, the Emperor's Palace, and I mean, it is all made of it's gold. Donald Trump's it looks house. like he has a, he ha- looks like he has a Ferengi decorator. Uh, <laughs> that or it's 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 like a Golden Caesar's palace. It, it's just the most, <laughs> yeah, it's just the most interesting design work there. And you know, the Harkonnen planet. We just already talked about that, but I, I think where the real design work was really interesting was in this the still suit. I thought that's really the best thing about the movie design wise because it felt it felt so real it felt so usable it 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 just felt like everything that I kind of pictured when I was reading the book um I always pictured them having also a head cover as well yeah I did too they actually do that in the um in the TV series yeah cuz yeah. that would make more sense uh cuz you lose a lot of water through perspiration from your head but yeah, you know, um, and e- you know, even the worms weren't bad. You know, there, there, there are some s- shots where they they are, and then, but for the most part, the the effects work there was really kind of cool. And and uh, I was kind of wondering how they did it. Was they got the sand to kind of move underneath, and you know, all that kind of stuff. It, it's it's not. Some of the stuff just really does. It's cool and it holds up. It's great. And then there are other parts of the design that were so out there that I kind of got a little bit lost for it. But luckily, I think for the majority of the movie, especially once we get to Arrakis and we're spending time with the Fremen, you know, so much of that stuff, it looks good. You know, it looks really good. It's really well designed. It The design is more understated, too, which really helps. And uh, I don't know. I don't know how you design 10,000 years in the future, so... It's it's got to be a tough thing to figure out. I, I mean, I, re- I really don't. How do you extrapolate to to try and get anything that would make sense in the first place? So, um, it, and yeah, you know, when we're folding space, I I really did kind of feel like we were on a space trip on the Sloop John B <laughs> with the the, the mm-hmm, be- Beach Boys because mm-hmm. it really was the worst trip I'd ever been on. Uh, and uh, I did like the ship design, though. I thought the little individual pods they flew up on, they flew in on, were really cool, and the big tubular ships where the space worms were working, I thought were really cool. And those ships actually reminded me a lot of. Um, I did a lot of research on outer space habitats that people had dreamed up in the '60s over the summer for um, a panel I did at Phoenix Comic Con last year, and that big tubular thing looked a lot like several different concepts that people had come up with in the 50s and 60s of what life would be like in outer space. So I thought it was really cool to kind of see that put into practice in a movie because I've never really seen anybody use that kind of ship design uh, in film that I could remember off the top of my head. Um, So I thought that was really cool. That was one of my favorite things about the movie, actually. Well, they would fold space, and then two years later in 1986, then it would appear over the Earth talking to whales. That's right. <laughs> That's right. And I apologize to all the listeners. I thought it was 1982 that we were talking about. It's 1984. So every, every single time I said 1982, take a drink. 
<laughs> there you go. There you go. Well, uh, what is kind of an interesting thing about the movie is that, you know, there's all of these different factions, all of these different people, and everybody's trying to control somebody else and, and to make them do what they want to do. I mean, even at the beginning of the movie, we learn about the Bene Gesserit uh, women who are trying to control... Uh, you know, birthing, basically, so they can birth this Kuzat Hadarat, you know, uh, the different political factions, they're all trying to control each other. The emperor has this brilliant plan about how he's going to destroy, uh, you know, the Treaties family with all this backstabbing. And I mean, it's just there's so much going on. And seems like that even 10,000 years in the future, you know, politics is really pretty much the same. It doesn't really all change that much, and I, I thought that was just kind of a interesting theme. You know, this comes from the '60s. The book does with with uh, Frank Herbert, and uh, he's writing towards the future. But uh, this is an interesting look at the future uh, because it's hopeful and not hopeful, all kind of at the same time. And, you know, it comes down to, to needing a savior character uh, in it. So it just, it was a really, it, it, thematically, it's just really interesting. It, it's combining a couple of different things that uh, um, it, it felt almost kind of like all these factions from like a Star Trek universe slammed together with the Star Wars universe. And you put all that together and you kind of pull out this thing. And so I, I don't know. I like that part of the movie. Um, cause Alice, you know, I like my themes. <laughs> well, I mean, certainly the, you know, if, if you're going to talk about politics as power, I mean, that's a, right. That's an age old story and politics has been going on since, you know, we started to claim things as ours, uh, and then somebody else wanted to claim it as theirs. So, I mean, I, I think those themes are as old as, as humans are. Um, and I, I feel like this story of, the the future where we've gone out and colonized again colonizing space firefly lots of other stories about humans going out and needing to find new planets to live on uh, and the expansion of the politics of this is mine that's yours where does the power lie and who has it um i think in dune is a dune frank herbert took a very interesting take on it uh and if you haven't read the books, I do, at least Dune, uh, I do feel like you should read it because I, I do think it gets a better, that part of the story does get a much better play because uh, there's more time to tell it and the intricacies and the subtleties, as I think several people already mentioned, can really get uh, their time. Now, I was reading, I was reading up on Frank Herbert and I think, I'm not an expert on Frank Herbert, but I do remember reading something along the lines of he was writing some type of paper or some type of study on the rise and the power of oil in the late 1960s. And I can see that in play here because oil at the time, that would have been, that would have been kind of like the, the power play. Who is controlling the world's resource for literally controlling how you're going to get around, you know? And that's kind of like what's going on here with Dune because the resource is spice extrapolate that being the resource of oil and the political maneuvering of all of the different governments trying to control that resource because as they say in dune he who controls the spice controls the universe 
But the reason why they say that is because whoever controls the spice controls commerce. That's the one thing that they really don't get across in the movie, and they do obviously in the book. Whoever controls the spice mining guild and provides them with this resource, whoever controls Arrakis, allows spice production and profit to be made. The more profitable you are, the greater you are as a noble house. Thereby, you gain the emperor's favor. Thereby, you maintain your rights and privileges over this planet. The Harkonnens wanted to keep that, but they weren't really doing so well at it because their business plan wasn't really the most progressive. Be that as it may, you're looking at all the different ways that if you take away your resource, it threatens your ability to create this kind of stability in your own vacuum of power or your or what the, the instability would cause the vacuum of power and in oil whoever controls oil in the 1960s basically controls however you're going to be doing commerce you know through shipping lanes through uh, exportation and through setting um, basically the pricing and stuff like that which led you know whoever did that led to the crisis in the late 1970s so I can see that as being this kind of this really nice general overlay of how uh, Frank Herbert was looking at things when he was writing Dune. Well, and there's this cool thing, too, with, with Paul. Uh, this saying of, you know, the sleeper awakes. The sleeper and uh, I, I thought that that was an interesting thing as well, is that, you know, when so, when people stop sleeping through life, things can can get fixed. Uh, you know, when you wake up to what's going on in your universe, uh, you know, people, it can change. Life can change. And uh, I think that's something that I really, really liked about the movie, especially, you know, we're here in a, a political season in, in the United States. And, you know, it's our job to wake up to what's going on around us. And I just, I really liked that. And that's when something changed in the Dune universe. Um, now, it was also because the Messiah figure woke up. It's a little bit different. But it, the message, I think, is still really applicable and, and has a lot to say just to everyday people. Um, you know, if you don't like the way things are going, first maybe wake up and see what's going on around you. And then... Two, do what you can to change it. And that's the wonderful thing about, you know, say living here in the United States. We can change things. It is a government for the people, by the people. Enough of the civics lesson, but <laughs> you, you get what I'm saying here. I liked that that was in this film. And I thought it was a really interesting thing to have in this film, especially in, you know, the time in which I am living. And it was a, it's a timely message no matter when you are. So I really appreciated that. So what you're saying, Matthew, is long live the fighters. <laughs> yes. If we had yes, done the movie the instead of the book, or... that would have been the toast. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> that would have been good. Well, I have one last question for you before we go. And it was this. It was something that, that it's bird because norm and i were talking how would you like to see somebody actually do dune do you think it can be done well um and this is i'm, I'm just dumping this on everybody right now they, they've, they've never seen us on the outline <laughs> excellent <laughs> and so um but yeah do you feel like there's a way in which the story of dune just maybe even just the first book could be done legitimately and done really well 
maybe in a mini series could you do it like in a you know two and a half hour film uh and how would you kind of maybe want to see that done it's a game of thrones level of complexity yeah so if if somebody with the kind of financial backing of hbo uh would do it in that kind of a series so there's enough time to get to know everybody and get to um, explore all of those political machinations and the subtleties they're in, um, then I think it would be a possibility to tackle any of the books as a single film, I think is, especially by today's standards of what we're now expecting out of that sort of thing, I just don't think it's doable as a single film, personally. Yeah, I agree. Um, I think that, you know, the sci-fi model that we got to see, when did that miniseries come out? In the early 2000s? I believe that's right. Yeah, I think it's 2000. Yeah, I mean, I think I think that was a, a good place to start. Um, I don't know that this necessarily needs to be like a long-running, like 10-season TV show. Um, but I think it's definitely more complex than a single movie can tackle. Um, and I think, uh, I think, you know, like a, a one to two season series could probably do a pretty good job with this book. Um, you definitely need a lot of money in the budget and you need a fantastic cast. Probably bring back some of the people in this cast, honestly, and they could probably still do a pretty good job with the characters. You need the right writer, though, I think. And I don't know who that would be. To do the adaptation. And that's a really good yeah. point. Yeah. Um, I mean, Matthew, you know my answer to this because we we talked about this. And I think, I think that Dune needs that breathing room because there is so much going on from so many different perspectives. It's, it's different when you have a story, say, a singular type of story, where you just basically have one main character and it's really one through line that goes from A to B, and then you have little side characters along the way. You know, that's very much the, the quest type story. But this isn't the quest story, even though that this movie tries to shape it out to be that way. This story has a lot politics going on and in politics you have a lot of points of view and in some ways if it's written correctly you would see it from the Harkonnen side of view you would see it from the Padishar Emperor's point of view you would see it especially from the Fremen's point of view because they are a mm-hmm. huge part to this story that completely get truncated uh, yeah they know. didn't get nearly enough screen time in this movie you really don't get to know them as a people and they were hands down one of my favorite parts of the book a lot of the culture comes from the Fremen, and then you start to learn over time, especially through the book, you get to learn how Paul is adapting himself to this culture, how he's shedding off his nobility and all of the heirs that he originally was when he was on Caladan, and learning his role through the process of understanding the Fremen and all of their culture, and with Cheney's help, and with Stilgar's help, and you got to see all of these really neat details of like the water rituals and how they respect like the body, the water of the body. I mean, it was amazing. And they never really got there. So you need that. And Rome on HBO only lasted for two seasons, and they were fantastic two seasons. So you don't have to have, you're right, you don't have to have this 10, 11, 12 season long thing. You just have to have the right dissemination of the story with the right cast and breaking it down with the right narrative and focusing on the high points and the low points and making sure that you're developing the momentum inside the story and and knowing where those points are. 
the cast is also going to be very important because you want to have somebody that's sympathetic to each part of the equation. And especially on the Fremen side. And then you're going to have to have a fantastic director and you're going to have to have fantastic production design because the visuals on this are going to have to deviate so far from what you've seen before and establish its own identity. So it's not an easy thing to do, but I think with the right people and the right studio involved, I think it's very doable today. I was talking about this uh, kind of idea with my brother-in-law um, just a few weeks ago, and we were talking about actually, we were referencing in, in Lord of the Rings and then in the Chronicles of Narnia films. And, you know, with Lord of the Rings, you had somebody who was a huge lover of the source material, and he came in, and he had an idea, and the studio gave him more than he thought that he was going to get, and he created something really special. Um, and they worked really hard, and, and, and the whole drive was is that they loved source material. You know, Peter Jackson loves the Lord of the Rings and the Hobbit series. Uh, he loves the Hobbit. So... On both sides, you know, it, it's coming from a place where somebody really loves the source material. And I think that's, uh, you know, what Dune needs. is it, I think it needs somebody who loves the source material, knows it backwards and forwards, and can find a way with a, a great screenwriter to create. I, You know, I'm thinking you can do this in maybe an eight-part miniseries on, on, like, Showtime or something like that. I don't need to see Chani's boobs every five seconds. I don't need that. That's not what we're talking about. We're talking about really good money basically coming in. We need that, that HBO-style money to make this happen. So... Uh, with somebody who has the vision and the drive because they love the source material to really create something that I think does more homage to what what Herbert is trying to do in the story and bring out some really cool points. You know, um, as we talked about in our Educating Geeks episode, you know, the way that women are dealt with in this story is very interesting. Um, and yet... Very that completely downplayed in the movie version, but you redo that and you do it with all that happened in the book with all the women, it comes off very different. Especially if you do the exact same end you got in the book, uh, where it's two women standing talking together about how they're really the powers behind it all. So I, I just I'm I'm you know you you. Basically, you do that, you know, eight to ten hour miniseries on HBO. I just think you could really do this so well. It could be so good, and it could be that Game of Thrones style in the sense of very gritty, very real feeling. Um, you know, have it. it it's a ten thousand year old universe, so it's pretty lived in as well. You could just create some amazing stuff here, and um, you don't have to feel like you have to beholden be beholden to this film for the most part so um you know you could maybe do little winks or nods here every once in a while but it could be something well, i think really in, cool. in my opinion you should go completely so. the other way you know i mean that, that to give it its own identity uh maybe except for mm -hmm. I, I think we should still bring toto back to score the uh <laughs> <laughs> well I, you know more, more more my idea was more in um you know maybe the sandworms could be basically the same you know except for much better CGI, obviously, you know, that kind of stuff. Uh, you know, some that kind of wink and a nod, not like 
actually we just took anything verbatim from <laughs> this movie. But yeah, I agree with you, Norma. I would really have it stand on its own, make its own cool universe that people are really excited to see. Because you're right, Alice. This is Game of Thrones style crazy awesome with the, the politics involved and everything like that. It's just as complicated. Well, um, should we do, uh, yeah, let's do, let's do some ratings. Uh, you know, where would you kind of put this on your scale? And you can, you can do whatever you want. Um, but it, do you, let's, let's do it like that. I, let's do it like this. Do you think that it, you know, especially if somebody who hasn't seen the movie today, is this definitely, is this worth somebody investing that, you know, two hours, uh, in, uh, you know, if they're a sci-fi fan, if they're listening to this show, which they probably are, uh, then, you know, yeah, they are kind of looking at the, <laughs> of course uh, they are Norm. Yeah. They, I mean, probably <laughs> are. Uh, yeah. So what do you, what do you guys think? I think that Dune has a place in the history of science fiction filmmaking. So if you are a historian or if you're someone who um, likes to learn about what has influenced what you're seeing today by going back and watching the things that did influence what you're seeing today, then I think it's definitely worth it. Um, I will rate it in two ways. How much I love it. It gets a five out of five heart plugs. <laughs> and do I think it's a good movie? <laughs> uh, and in in that case, it probably gets a three out of five sandworms. Huh, um, what an excellent question. Um, if you're a fan... Well, that's what I do. I know, right? <laughs> that's why you have that that's job. literally why we're here. Um, that was a terrible question. How dare you ask me that? Why am I here? <laughs> um if you're a fan of david lynch i i definitely recommend this film um it's got his stamp on every square centimeter um in terms of whether or not it's a great movie um i'd probably give it like a two out of five sandworms i don't couldn't even come up with a good enough rating sorry guys oh. uh but also, you know, like, I could see that if I had seen this movie at the right time, at the right age, I would totally love it. Um, it just didn't connect with me all that much. You know, I had a really interesting um, private message that popped up on Facebook earlier today. A buddy of mine who's probably around in his mid-20s, he, he goes, what do you think I should read next, Norm? And I said, I, he goes, should I read Dune next? Just out of the blue. I swear, yes. I, I swear to God. And he goes, uh, I go, why, why are you asking me that? And he goes, well, I need something to read. And I know that you are a, a big fan of the Dune book. And I read that on your Facebook page. And, and I said, well, and, he, and he goes, that sounds like fantastic. I trust what you say. So it's interesting how social media allows us to filter our loves into other people's interests that weren't there when we were there. And I have to say for this movie, if you are a fan of science fiction movies and you have gone back to see movies like Flash Gordon and The Last Starfighter and Krull and Tron because you've heard of these movies or saw posts on the internet or trust all of the different shows that you're listening to here on the 602 Club and you should because we know what we're talking about 
<laughs> you're going to go back and watch this movie and say like, okay, I see what they were doing. I probably don't have to watch that again, but I don't have to convince anyone age 35, 38, 40 or higher because these were our movies. These were the movies that forged uh, our formative years in science fiction. I love this movie to death, but I don't think it's the greatest movie in the world. That's, I mean, I have to agree with you, Alice. There, there are two ways of looking at this movie. I can watch this thing on repeat when it comes on HBO. I actually, I did one night. It was like <laughs> one o'clock in the morning and it was a work night and it Dune's on. I'm like, I'm going to watch it. I'm going to watch Planet of the Apes. You know, I'm going to watch <laughs> Close Encounters when it comes on because those are our movies. So I think it was a very ambitious movie for the time. And I think they were trying to make a statement by not going in one of these quote unquote star directions. Did that work for them? Not necessarily. And they also probably had one of the greatest science fiction novels to try and dissect and turn into a two-hour movie. Did we get what I call the Cliff's Notes version of this movie? Absolutely. You got the right tones, but unfortunately, you didn't get the whole story. I think that they succeeded 50% of the time and fell short of the book the other 50% of the time. So for me... I. I can't get any higher rating than what you gave, Alice. I love the heart plugs. You, you, I almost fell out of my chair. <laughs> but I will give it five out of five squoob boxes. And if you want to know what a squoob is, that is the mouse box, the juice box that <laughs> Beast Raban drank on Giddy Prime. So I give it five squoobs and I will give it three Chris Knives as a movie. Oh goodness! Uh, because well, are delicious. <laughs> what? 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 What to say? Um, I I would say this. If you are a sci-fi fan, I definitely think that this movie is so worth going back and taking a look at, just historically at where sci-fi movies came from, especially in the '80s, and it it is influential for its time and and what you may pick up that you'd see in other places and what other people would do in years to come. So I, uh, for that reason alone, I'd say if you're judging the movie that way, it's probably, you know, a four out of five still suits. I mean, it, it's, it's, it's worth taking a look at and, and, and seeing that history of film. Uh, and I enjoy doing that. So part of me just even watching this movie was from that perspective of going back and I love science fiction. I really enjoy it. And so getting to see the history of this genre and how it's progressed. I mean, you know, all the way from the day the earth stood still, the film to, you know, something like Dune all the way to the force awakens that just came out, you know, science fiction has, has come a long way, but in the same time, there's there's so many things that are still continuing to happen in films that just get repeated or used or ideas or it, it's it's cool it's really cool and so from that perspective dune's definitely worth watching from a movie perspective this is probably like a two and a half out of five boils <laughs> on the Baron's face. I mean, I gave it two and a half, uh, but it's probably more like a two. Um, it's just not a very good movie. Part of that is what we talked about at the beginning where I had to ask Megan, would you understand the film well enough? Because it's tr it really is. Everybody's on a spice trip in this movie. Uh, I think even the director 
David Lynch was probably on a lot of trips <laughs> during this movie. Um, and it shows with what you get on screen. Uh, but again, I, I still think regardless, it's something that was worth watching. And I'm glad I did, especially after reading the book and kind of seeing this. I might actually go and visit the miniseries and, and check that out to kind of see what they do and how it worked there. Yeah, so, I think I'm going to do it, the same. You know, it's gotten me interested, you know, uh, which I think is great. And so uh, I love, though, that, you know, what's so fun about this show and I'm really excited about this year is, is uh, Norm and I and... Alice and Megan, we kind of talk about before the show, and there's some plans we have to do some more older films uh, to, to get back into things, maybe something like a Tron or a Flash Gordon or something Sorry. like that. <laughs> yeah, Last Starfighter is actually on the you. short list as well. And so doing those kind of things, sir, I love, I love, love, love getting to do that for you guys because for me, it's a journey because some of that stuff I've seen, some of it I haven't. So I get to be uh, in some ways on the side of the listener who – well, Dune, I've never seen that. Do I listen to that? Well, but hey, the host hasn't even either. So, you know, it's an experience for all of us and it creates, it's, it's fun. And that's what this show is all about. And I really appreciate getting to do it. And it's because of our associate producers through Patreon. I really want to thank Ken Tripp and Davis Grayson. These guys are incredible. And it's because of them that we get to do this show for you every week. And uh, it's a big year for us here on Trek FM. It is the 50th anniversary of Star Trek. And that means that we have so much going on in the network. I mean, we've got a show that happens five days a week for you. We've got uh, talking about every hour of Star Trek. We've got all the shows we're doing. we got the 602 Club. So much happening. We're a listener-supported network. And with all that going on, we want to make sure that the content continues to be what you expect quality-wise. And to make that happen, we need your support. So go to patreon.com slash trek.fm and you can see how you can be part of the team and make sure that that keeps coming to you each and every week. Alice, thank you for coming back. Um, you and Megan, tell everybody a little bit about, I like to think of it as just our sister podcast, uh, Educating Aww. Geeks, because I just love having you guys on. And I love the fact that we have this wonderful partnership. And and seriously, if, if you haven't listened to that episode that Norm and I were on, it's totally worth it. So tell everybody kind of about what you guys do and where everybody can find you. I'm going to let uh, Megan do that because she's, she's way better at it than I am. But it's not just one. It's two episodes because you guys helped us come up with drinking That's game right. rules as well. That's so right. it's two oh episodes God, I that you need to hear the Norm and Matt show. Of course I forgot the drinking game. <laughs> We played the drinking game and that's got why dangerous. Okay. Yeah. Um, so uh, like Alice said, uh, we actually like to do two podcasts for every topic that we cover. And our whole thing is that we don't believe in revoking people's geek cards. If you know someone who has never watched an episode of Star Trek, grab them, grab a beer, sit down and watch it together. And uh, we'll be along for the ride. Um, we've covered all kinds of great topics we think you guys would love, including Dune, like we've been talking about. We covered the book at the end of last year. And there are two great podcasts. You'll hear us talking about the book as a whole and coming up with drinking game rules so you can enjoy the book with a little bit of a, a drinky poo by your side. Um, and... <laughs> 
And for the Star Trek fans, we do a weekly post on our website called All the Trek, where one of our hosts is watching Star Trek all the way through from the very beginning for the first time. Um, and I think uh, that's Kiko's Brie. I think she's on season two right now. So she's getting to some really great of episodes of the next gen. Yeah, season two of Star Trek The Next Generation. So we hope you guys will check us out. You can find us at educatinggeeks.com. And whatever your favorite social network is, Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, uh, we're there. And our handles are all at educatinggeeks. Also, before you go, Megan, tell everybody where they can actually find you just personally. And personally, you can find me. I'm at Meg Calcote, M-E-G-C-A-L-C-O-T-E. And I'm pretty active on Twitter and Instagram. So uh, find me there. And Alice, I'm so glad you're back. It's always so much fun. I mean, we got to talk Arrow this year already. And now you're already back talking Dune and... I can't wait till you're back again because it's always fun. So tell everybody where they can find you online personally as well when you're not just hanging around with educating geeks. When I'm not drinking whiskey with the whiskey crew. If you were looking (laughs) for me on the internet, basically all you need to do is search A-L-C-B-K-R. And that's my handle pretty much on all the social networks. Norm? Goodness, uh, a lot has changed since uh, we've mm-hmm. podcasted together for you. Uh, one, your station here on the network, uh, you upgraded the ship a little bit, and then make sure to tell everybody where they can find well, you. First of all, well. I wanted to shout out to the, uh, the the EG ladies here, our sisters from other misters, as I like to, like to say there. And uh, I, I love being on this show with Alice and Megan. I mean, it's it's absolutely fantastic. Oh. It's It's nice because... It's, we have such a nice rounded opinion of what we're talking about. You know, it's not just one-sided in any way. I think this is a really nice group. And I, I, I really do cherish the day that we all get together and just drink insane amounts of whiskey together. Because <laughs> I think that's going to yes. be a lot of fun, you know. We must make this happen, yeah. Um, but, uh, <laughs> well, you know, I, I could probably make that happen. I have a uh, family that lives in Phoenix. So oh, I didn't know that. I'm sure that we will visit them sometime and that means that we'll be close enough for norm to come over and i'm just an hour and something odd plane right away so there you go sounds awesome guys we can uh, can do a live recording uh with drinks that would would be be awesome awesome. that would be awesome with drinks and with singing so yes (laughs) but you're right but you're right matthew (laughs) Uh, a couple things have changed since i've been on the 602 club Uh, i've actually um warped ahead if you will uh another 80 some odd years and now i am uh hosting the original series content podcast for Trek FM called Standard Orbit, where every week my cohorts, Jeffrey Harlan and Ken Tripp, we take a look at all the different themes that you can still talk about after 50 years of the original series. And it's something that is new to me. I got to say, the Enterprise A is looking beautiful, too. You guys have really cleaned her up nice. I I love the look. I know that shit the back of my hand. Dunk. (laughs) it's been a lot of fun getting into the original series uh it's a passion of mine and um it's probably it's my favorite series of all the star trek so uh i get a little overexcited sometimes on the podcast and you know uh that'll regulate out as soon as we get the dilithium crystals and the uh, warp matrix and the injectors kind of streamlined so well it'd be nice if you guys could you know stop hitting a wormhole every time you get a warp so you know we're just really excited (laughs) that way no, but it's, it's been a great fortune of us to be able to do that. And uh, I've been transitioned. Uh, I've transitioned my team uh, with Floyd Dorsey and with Jeff over to Warp 5. They're doing a great job there. 
So you can find me on Standard Orbit. I'll be guest starring there on Warp 5 here and there. And, you know, I'd love coming back here to the 602 Club because this is a great place to be. Why wouldn't you want to be here? Uh, you can find me as an executive producer on Trek FM. I'm a patron of the network on patreon.com slash trekfm. And I've just changed my Twitter handle for all of the 602 Clubbers that have been following me. It is now Starfighter1701 because I am a huge fan of The Last Starfighter if you haven't been able to tell yet. And always trust Centauri because Centauri is always right. What? 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 What did you? You? You like the what first norm? Starfighter? So. Okay. Okay. Gotcha. <laughs> gotcha. <laughs> oh gosh. Uh, well, everybody knows you can find me on Twitter at Matt Rushing zero two. You can find me on Instagram at M Rushing. You also can find me on Literary Treks with Dan, where we talk about the books and the comics of Star Trek, interviewing authors. We've had a great lineup so far already this year, uh, talking the brand new Deep Space Nine book. Uh, coming up this week, we'll be talking to Kirsten Beyer about the brand new Voyager book, so can't wait. Check all of those out. You can find me in the Orb with Christopher Jones talking exclusively about Deep Space Nine. That's right, we're on that wonderful round station at the edge of the final frontier. It's a great place to be. Come by Quarks with us. And I have a brand new podcast that I just started with John Mills called Aggressive Negotiations, a Star Wars podcast. You can find that on iTunes, and you can also find that on our website at aggressivenegotiations.squarespace.com. So be sure to check that out. Um, And that show is under The Jedi Masters on Twitter. So check all that stuff out. John and I have a great time talking about Star Wars. It's so much fun. And... Uh, the show's a little different. It's it's kind of more bite-sized. We do around 30-minute episodes for you, so great for a commute. So be sure to check that out. And I'd really appreciate everybody stopping by the 602 Club. And y'all come back now, you hear? Yeah.